Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Hey, X. Hello. Here we are in impeachmentville, even in the Republicans, at least to a micron extent. Maybe it'll grow. Yeah. What's going on? What do you want? You to know, you keep you're like uh, Hope Springs Eternal guy. <laughs> you, 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 the, the, the apostate out in the desert hoping that the party will come and join you uh i'm not as uh, you know certain i'm of for you. hope and change that that's what that's what <laughs> you I, know that, i've clung to here yeah so we had your, your old uh, client pierre delecto uh better yes. known as mitt romney uh did an interview with axios and he seems to be the one guy who's willing to stand up on this uh issue of Trump's behavior. Let's uh, let's take a listen to what he had to say. Saying China, will you investigate uh, my political opponent? Uh, is wrong. It's a mistake. Uh, it was shocking for the, in my opinion, for the president to do so, and a mistake for him to do so. I can't imagine coming to a different point of view. We certainly can't have presidents asking foreign countries to provide something of political value that is, after all, against the law. As I said, he's the only guy. You know, CNN had a poll this morning. I just not to burst your bubble, Murphy that said that uh, Trump with a 90% approval rating among Republicans and just about the same number uh, opposed impeachment and, uh, you know, this uh, just about the same number believed that this was all uh, politically motivated by Democrats. So Trump, it seems to me, is succeeding in partisanizing this uh, in a way that makes it very, very hard for your tribe to stray. Well, look, it's always tribal loyalty. I mean, hell, it was tribal loyalty of Bill Clinton. I, I don't remember all the pioneering Democratic feminists in the Senate speaking up about I that. I agree, either. but the, and, However, and he didn't I get will, convicted. I, let me, let me, yeah, yeah, yeah. But let me straighten you out on the Republicans. Okay. It is definitely a tribal issue right now. But these things are, they're dynamic. They change. The, the Republican pressure valve is rising for two reasons. One, the abandonment of the Kurds and the geopolitical stupidity of what Trump has done to open up North Syria to the Russians and the Iranians is a big deal. You have seen Republicans criticize him on that. That's like the tip of the iceberg of the contempt a lot of them have for him below the surface. And the other problem is more one of practical politics, which is the polling starting to come back. And in some of these Senate races where, you, you know, the, the Republican senators would have told you, five, eight weeks ago, oh, we're going to be fine. We're not fine. We're in real trouble. North Carolina doesn't look good. Joni Ernst is going to have a race now, let alone the one who's already in trouble, like, you know, Gardner in Colorado or Maine or McSally. Uh, Arizona. So, yeah. so, so the point being the rusty wheels are turning. Nobody wants the static from the base voters they get with tangling with Donald Trump. Though I can tell you, other polls show an approval rating, but under that, real doubts about Trump among about 45% of the, the primary electorate. So there are cracks in the granite. Now, look, I'm not Pollyanna enough to I think, think that, that horse has left the barn, brother. You're Pollyanna. Uh, 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 well, no, no, I'm, I'm half Polly. I'm not <laughs> Anna yet. I'm just Polly. Uh, but I do know the hard politics of this thing is the situation continues to get worse, and we we know more and more. You see, one, one difference between the R's and the D's are you guys do everything out in the open. You're always having a rally. There's always folk music, a lot of crying. Our thing is the Sopranos, not a lot in public. But behind the scenes, that's one reason he backed off on this insane idea to bring the G7 to his hotel Trump knows the frustration level with the R's in the Senate is rising quickly as he's seen as more of a political liability than a plus in the general election. Now, does that guarantee any outcome? No. But I think the wheels are starting to move. And again, I, I'm proud of my old pal and client Mitt for being the one guy, and it doesn't hurt to have a big base in Utah that likes you more than Trump, 
so he doesn't have some of the same political squeeze, but to be out there saying it. And again, privately, a lot of Republicans sound like Romney. Yeah, but publicly is how they're going to have to vote. They're each going to have to stand at their desk and cast a ballot in front of the world. And, uh, you know, it's very, very hard to see 20 of them showing the courage that Romney has shown in speaking out here. We did hear from Lindsey Graham as well, uh, who, as you know, as we've discussed before, has been, you know, a, a, um, a lapdog for Trump for much of the administration. Uh, and he's angry, obviously, about Syria, although he's pulled his horns in the last couple of days. And he uh, himself, and this is another, both these interviews were with Axios, he allowed a little wiggle room uh, on the whole impeachment issue. Let's listen to that. Are you open-minded if more comes out that you could support impeachment? Sure. I mean, I mean, I, show me something that, that, that is a crime. If you could show me that, you know, Trump actually was engaging in a quid pro quo outside the phone call, that would be very disturbing. I'm a little skeptical. Paint me skeptical here as to whether Lindsey Graham would ever Oh, I think you made that actually... really clear. Yeah. <laughs> you, you talk about the Republicans on this, like Dracula, about the blood bank. You're jealous they've got all the blood and you're never going to forgive them. But, but my point is there are cracks in the wall. That doesn't mean it'll come falling down. Mm-hmm. We will see. I mean, part, we, we, as we speak, Ambassador Taylor is uh, testifying in the House, obviously a key player in the whole impeachment sagas he was the one who raised the the uh, concerns about a quid pro quo over military aid uh and if taylor uh if taylor's testimony is as explosive as his text messages it could add another brick to the load here yeah, so be big we shall see let me uh, just quickly chime in on Lindsay because i know him pretty well and nobody's more disappointed than i am about what's happened with him and trump but i think there's a point of clarification people miss which is Lindsay's allegiance to trump has nothing to do with affection for trump i think deep down Lindsay holds the same opinion of trump he did back when he was the first presidential candidate to really criticize him followed by jeb and then a lot of silence from the others Lindsay's made a calculation and i disapprove of it but that he can have more impact influencing trump than being outside the tent you know pissing in so the problem is if you're Lindsey graham you now know that strategy failed you don't you haven't only cashiered your reputation and become a lapdog You've also had no influence because the the Kurdish thing is a perfect example of the kind of things that I think Lindsay thought he could help prevent. So it's time for a little um, hard thinking on behalf of Lindsey Graham because the strategy failed. Here's what Lindsay understands. Lindsay understands that he was headed for a titanic primary defeat in South Carolina by being an anti-Trump Republican. And so I, I'm sure he... he uh, also believes what you said, but this is a matter of survival. Lindsey Graham knows the, the, the way you have the least influence is if you're a defeated United States senator, and he cast his lot with Trump on this basis. And nothing, yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. nothing that has happened uh, reduces that the, the threat of, of, of peeling away from Trump. And Lindsey's on the ballot in 2020. So uh, we shall see where all this goes. He did. He led the charge on Syria, and then this weekend he pu- he spoke with Trump and he pulled his horns in on the Sunday shows. So uh, we'll see about that. Yeah, just quickly, what, one last point. You put this in the Paula maybe Anna uh, category too. You need but to get a poly grip. A is what these, you need. <laughs> I think a lot of these guys, if quickly trump could if the situation gets worse and i think it will the political toxicity rises for them with trump and they do axe trump and they get a restart with pence um they could be better off even lindsey graham i'm not sure republican primary voters 10 months after trump is flushed and they have a new conservative president will be nearly as much on the war path as conventional wisdom thinks we may never find out i agree it's a long shot but i I think there's a lot of CW here that may not uh, actually be the case if, if things were to happen quick enough, like by Christmas. Okay. Back but anyway, here, on back, to back the, on on the pla- others. Now back here on planet Earth, uh, let's talk about <laughs> the, uh, the the Democratic uh, race for 
for president. You know, last week... <laughs> I'm not sure that's planet Earth. I, 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 that was a layup for you. I can't believe I set that up for you. The uh, We talked last week uh, after the debate about Elizabeth Warren's exposure on this Medicare for All issue. She had opportunities in the debate and then after the debate uh, in interviews to to clean it up a little and say, yes, I'm going to have my own plan. She resisted. But by Sunday, she was telling an audience in Iowa that she will, in fact, over the next few weeks, put out a plan that talks about Medicare for all. And specifically, she said how we pay for it. Um, does that, <laughs> you, that, you know, Paul Krugman in the, in the uh, Times this morning, I think made the right point. It's not, it's not the funding, which is a kind of a quagmire uh, for her, uh, that is the problem as much as the uh, cancellation of private insurance. And so I don't know where she's going with all this. It'll be interesting to see if she has an entirely new plan. Yeah, I think she's had plan A, and now we'll have plan B. Plan A was to avoid having a plan at all costs on this one. Now she's been cornered on that. So we're going to plan B, which is going to be how to slip the noose uh, on this issue, because it could be a real disaster in the general and could even be a vulnerability, according to the data in the primary. This is a golden opportunity for Bernie Sanders to show some of this new vigor and get some media on the air pinning her down. Because he, uh, you know, I think his plan is nuts, but he has numbers. Yeah, I'm going to raise a ton of revenue to pay for it. And I think he could come at her from the left and really corner her here and force her to either get deep into this and be honest about what it cost, or try to try to slip out of it now and take the take the lumps from the left. Either way, it's going to be mark to market accounting honesty time for Elizabeth Warren, and she's going to learn what it's like to be a front runner where you can't duck and dodge. It's you going know, to be interesting is, to see how she navigates this quagmire that you described being trapped between Bernie uh, and a better political answer on this question is what's kept her from not having a plan. Right. She has a plan on, as we've discussed, virtually everything but this. Uh, but now, uh, the, you know, the the uh, the hand is being called and she's going to have to show her cards. And it'll be really interesting to see uh, where she lands on this, especially because Bernie is resurgent. Thank goodness his health is good. He, he seems more vigorous uh, having gone through the heart attack and the and the uh, the, the remedies uh, for it, the stents. And he uh, showed up in. Uh, in Queens over the weekend, and uh, so did 28,000 people uh, to see him yeah. and his new, very, very uh, prominent supporter, AOC. Let's listen to what they had to say. We right now have one of the best Democratic presidential primary fields in a generation. And much of that is thanks to the work that Bernie Sanders has done in his entire life. I am happy to report to you that I am more than ready. that we face today. I am more than ready to assume the office of President of the United States. To put it bluntly, I am back. You know, my reaction to hearing AOC was a big yawn. I, I thought she'd really go to bat for Bernie. Now, look, I think it's good that he has her. It's a great validator on the left. Uh, it does show uh, the press a new narrative of new energy in the campaign, although I did expect him to work in a quiet thank you to the evil big pharmaceutical company that made those two hard stents. But putting that aside, 
Um, she did not attack anybody. Th- this was interesting to me. She endorsed him, and that's worth something. But she's not going to be his attack dog am- among the left. At least she didn't do it at that rally. This was more payback for her early uh, support that she received from Bernie. So, you know, if, if she doesn't weaponize a bit, I'm not sure she'll be worth all that much to him. So he, he picked up not just AOC, but Ilhan Omar, another favorite uh, of the left and of young people. And I think that the big competition here is, uh, yes, among very liberal voters, but also among the young. And uh, we'll see if Bernie gets a bump as a result of these endorsements. And Bernie needs a new burst of energy, if you believe this uh, Suffolk uh, College poll the, uh, that USA Today published yesterday from Iowa. Uh, he is now in fourth place, a virtual tie between Biden and Warren, 18 and 17, Pete Buttigieg at 13, Bernie at nine. The headline here is Buttigieg uh, moving up into totally. third place. Now, what do you make of that? Well, I, I want to beat my nail one more time on Bernie. He's now got validators. He's now got a little vim and vigor. He just needs a wedge issue. And he's got the money to inject one in the campaign, including advertising. But if he doesn't do that, he's going to stay the second best progressive to Elizabeth Warren. But I, I agree with you. Look, the story is Buttigieg had his first great debate because he, he changed his playbook. Instead of being a commentator and an observer on stage in these debates, he became an active participant and he drew some ideological lines. He kind of followed the strategy, which was what he should have, which is to be the better Biden in, in the center, center left. And it's, it's starting to work for him. He's also been up with media. I believe he's about to go up in New Hampshire. He's even got a web ad up where he mentions the other candidates by name, talking about the, the problems with uh, Medicare for all. So in all ways, he's kind of firing on, you know, some cylinders here. So he's moving up in the polls. And I can see him. We have a lot of time left, but he could become the real Biden understudy. And if he can get out of Iowa, if Biden winds up third and he's second to Elizabeth Warren and he bounces into New Hampshire with all those independent yuppie voters, that starts to become a real path for him if he can do it. One thing about I want to I want to stick with Pete, but one thing we should note about the poll that will undoubtedly be reminded of when Cory Booker joins us in a few minutes, is that 29% of voters said they were undecided in this poll and 63% of voters who have a choice said that they still might change their mind before the caucuses. Iowa, you know, is treacherous that way and you can have shifts at the end. So we should should point that out. But here's the thing about Pete. Uh, He has uh, obviously... You know, starting from where he started in this race, he's run a very strong campaign. It's largely been leveraged on the uh, on his own personal uh, campaigning and his his, uh, you know, the ability to speak not just in sentences, but paragraphs. As you said, he's really focused his message more lately uh, in both tonally and, and, and ideologically doing a lot of things right. There are a lot of uh, organizational challenges to running for president. And I think maybe the greatest challenge Pete faces, or one of them, is one that you don't really see above the surface except when things go wrong. And that is, are you organized enough to to run this very complex kind of venture? Uh, he was in Chicago last week, uh, and he, uh, he and I sat down at the Institute of Politics just as a story was breaking about them having to pull back a sponsor on a fundraiser there who had been the uh, city attorney uh, at the time that the city was refusing to release the tape of the Laquan McDonald shooting, leaving the legal arguments aside. This is a very inflammatory issue with segments of the Democratic electorate, including the black community where Pete's been having problems. I asked him about this, and this is what he said. I believe very strongly that, that transparency and justice for Laquan McDonald is a lot more important than a campaign contribution. So uh, I learned about it this morning, and uh, within about an hour of that, uh, he's no longer involved in the event or in the campaign. But he also allowed that they screwed up. They hadn't vetted properly. He said, we've gone from four to 400 people almost overnight, and I suggested that they add one or two more to do vetting. But it does make you wonder about his level of organization uh, moving forward. Elizabeth right. Warren has a great organization. We don't know about Pete. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and that gets back to the caucus again. It's always good to have polls rise in Iowa, but polls are a noise meter for last week. The question in a caucus, which is so different than a primary, it's much harder to poll because of the, the multiple ballot nature of it. But I, I think you make a good point about Pete. This is not uncommon for these campaigns that, that, that start with kind of a spark and get larger and larger, and then they have to manage scaling up. And when you become a more and more serious candidate, the more the press will kill you for small mistakes like this one. I, I thought the other tell was with all the trouble he's had with his police department when they swore in the new uh, recruits, you know, they were all white guys. And normally if you're a Paul and you're a mayor where something can go bad every single day, it's hard to run as a mayor or a governor. Um, because the unexpected can come knocking at your door. You leave a good master politician behind to watch the store. And I was stunned they didn't get in front of that with that police recruitment uh, class, which which brings us all to the big issue, which is if we wind up, if Biden does start to implode and, and, and does poorly in Iowa, the winner becomes a loser, he doesn't have a comeback in New Hampshire, both Elizabeth Warren, the darling of the Harvard faculty lounge, and P- Pete Buttigieg, the, the candidate of the people with perfect SAT scores, both go down to South like Carolina. And neither of them has a particularly, <laughs> but neither of them has particularly good connection traditionally to the African American community. That yeah. is going to be a fascinating contest <clears throat> to watch two candidates outside their comfort zone go for the vote that will probably tip it one way or the other. Um, it's going to be very interesting to watch. We should point out that together we actually had a perfect SAT score. So, uh, oh, I wish. Yeah. No, I mean, I think when you add yours and mine up, we probably get to 800 or whatever. Well, luckily they're secret, so nobody, <laughs> nobody would, will, will ever know. Um, so anyway, yeah, it, 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 can't, can't you agree though? We're starting to see trends now as we're 100 days out in Iowa of kind of who's getting in the ring and who isn't. And I'll be interested to hear from our guest, Cory Booker, what his plan is, because the clock is ticking now. We should point out, you know, there was a piece in the Times today about all the gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands among Democrats about Biden, because, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people have placed a bet on Biden as the guy who can beat Trump. Now they're worried that he may come up lame. And the the horse that's, uh, that's sprinted out in the lead, Elizabeth Warren, is someone who many of them fear can't can't beat trump and they're uh, at a loss before we uh before we dismiss biden uh, it should be pointed out there was another um, a morning consult poll he's generally been doing well there but he's still got you know a substantial lead nine ten point lead he uh there's a a new poll out in california that shows him with a substantial lead uh you know uh biden isn't going anywhere and uh, we'll see whether he can sustain two losses in the first two campaigns and survive. But this whole predicate yeah, I that, wouldn't that, bet on that, you know, people are saying, well, we can we get another candidate? And I don't think you can get another center left candidate in of prominence while Biden is still alive in this race. And Biden's going to be alive in this race long after it's time for or long after it is possible, really, for a candidate to get in and compete for the nomination. Yeah, the, it's interesting because the filing deadlines are starting to happen now to actually get on the primary ballot. So even if Hillary Clinton woke up tomorrow and wanted to run, it's starting to get very, very technically problematical. But to your point about Biden and the national polls, I think they're actually a weakness for Biden because I think they're a false indicator. I think they're driven by name ID. And if if the guy who's got the strength of being the perceived winner against Trump is the loser in the early states, plus the fact of the third primary, cash on hand, he's not doing well. Yeah, he which is, is huge. He's not even first tier anymore in fundraising, so that means he has no fuel to stay around and try to take advantage of that national name ID or that African-American support he has down the process. So if I were the Biden campaign, I think probably they're finding psychological comfort in like a California poll now, but it's a mirage. They need to take chances and the big mistake, and they, they're going to have another opportunity, maybe the last one now when we, we learn the Russian troll farms are now targeting Biden. Biden's in a position where he could start the general election and start to really engage Trump, but they've just not been able to do it. And that, to me, is the big tell that it just might not be Joe's cycle. So the guy who really hopes to fill that void is about to join us, Cory Booker, who is auditioning for that center-left position and so far has not broken through at a point in this 
Iowa poll. He has a big organization in Iowa. Everybody agrees it's a competitive one. And the question is, can he take advantage of it? So let's let's bring in Senator Cory Booker. Hey, Senator. Hey, man. Well, thank you for doing this. Let me uh, start our, our Hacks on Tap questioning. You're our special guest, Hack, and uh, we always want to talk a little bit about the race. But I, I want to start out with something a lot of people may not know. I've worked Jersey politics for a long time, and you've always had a small but vocal Republican fan club because you've been a real hero in education reform in charter schools as mayor and otherwise. You're seen as one of the real good guys willing to take on a little political heat for that. I'm going to give you an opportunity to make some news here. Uh, Senator Warren came out, I believe, yesterday calling for an end to all federal funding on public charter schools. Uh, you, you have a point of view on that? Anything you want to say? Murphy, Murphy's trying to, Murphy's <laughs> trying to kill your campaign, right? No, no. Uh, it, there's a Joel Benenson poll, David. Joel Benenson showing about 65% support for public charter schools and the Democratic electorate. So anyway, Senator, I thought I'd give you a chance to gain on Warren here because she's doing pretty well. I, I don't want to comment specifically because I didn't hear exactly what she said, but I'll tell you this. You know, in Newark, New Jersey, uh, we had a tra- tragic uh, reality with our schools, which was they were failing our kids. And we double down on expanding great schools uh, and closing bad schools. And we took our high-performing charter schools and really gave them the support they needed, these public charter schools, to expand. And we expand magnet schools as well and brought in, you know, Bard College to run a public school in our city. Long story short is we found local solutions that work for our kids. If you're a black kid in Newark, which is the majority of our population, your chance of going to a high-performing school that beat the suburbs went up about 400%. Uh, we now have had 30 plus percent graduation rate increase. And on top of that, reading math score skyrocketed. In fact, one study in University of Washington called our city now the best city in America for beat the odd schools, high poverty, high performance. So anybody that wants to try to undermine the public schools, public charter schools, magnet schools, or traditional district schools, they're serving my kids. They're, they're going to have to deal with me. Is this something you might, you, you see as a, uh, a public debate down down the line here with your fellow candidates, Elizabeth Warren included? You, you know, look, I'm, I'm a pragmatist. I actually had to run something. I had to deliver services. I, ha- I had, and, and under the most challenging conditions. I mean, folks uh, have to remember, I was the mayor of the city of Newark during the global recession. Um, and I took over a city that had generations of crime and corruption problems. And, you know, since the 67 riots, we were declining in population, declining in tax base. And we were able to dramatically turn that around to become the biggest economic development period of our city in 60 years. The schools going from state takeover uh, to now really uh, on, on an incredible track of improvement, you know, uh, the first supermarkets in decades and food deserts, first hotels built in 40 years, creating thousands of jobs, apprenticeship programs for our kids. And so my point is, is like, I'll take anybody on when it comes to the actually being a chief executive, delivering results under the most difficult of circumstances, most challenging conditions, uh, and making things happen. And, and I do think that that prepares you in many ways, uh, for to be the chief executive of our country. So let me ask you this. You've got this really interesting record, which, uh, part of which you just spoke about. You've had my view, and I've said this publicly, uh, a series of really, really solid debate uh performances you're the happy warrior out there you're you you put together a good organization uh in Iowa I was out there everybody seems to uh, agree on that and yet the poll numbers haven't cooperated and I'm wondering why why is it that you haven't gotten the conductivity that you've been looking for yet despite all of these things well, I think that in many ways you're better situated to, to, to judge on that. I'm not the best pundit and have gotten things dramatically wrong in the past uh, in 2016, which probably most of us did. This is what I do know, though, is as far as the metrics that were important to us to judge our campaign, um, we're doing well on all of them. And polling was not one of them. In other words, for us, when we looked at Jimmy Carter polling at 1% around this time or Bill Clinton polling in the single digits around this time. Barack Obama, I think he was up 15, 20 points or so behind Hillary Clinton at this time. Behind him. Nationally, but not in Iowa. Not in Iowa, though. In Iowa, he was right in the mix. Yeah. Yeah. But, but at the end of the day, we do know that the people who are front runners as far out 
um, in the Democratic Party have never gone on to be president. What we wanted to do, though, was to make sure, looking at what you all did in in, in, um, in Iowa uh, under the Obama campaign, looking what everybody from Kerry, who was polling at 4%, and then went on and won Iowa, we knew that we just had to build a great team. Um, and we're, we're doing all of building a great organization, which you alluded to, but we're winning in endorsements in Iowa. We have more endorsements from local elected officials, people who do make a difference in those caucus rooms, city council people, mayors, uh, state legislators, and anybody else. So the polling has not been predictive. And what has, uh, I think, is the kind of things that you were talking about. The one thing I will give a nod to, though, where we're not doing well, which could be a result of the polling, is we're just not raising money in the way that um, other candidates are, the top three or four fundraisers have, you know, four and five times the amount of resources we have. And that is big. I mean, we have to, in these next two months, raise the resources we need to build upon our competitive advantage uh, in Iowa if we're going to actually win Iowa. And so this is really the, the our time uh, uh, that we think is, is crunch time for us. Because we look out and we know we're the most competitive team. If I come out of Iowa, New Hampshire in the top two or three, I really do believe I, I have a wider pathway to the nomination um, and the better ability even to win than the front runners that are there. Yeah, you know, why do you think that? Why, why, t- talk about that. You know, talk about the your 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 relative positioning. Uh, you know, your positioning relative to your. Competitors, let's leave aside this other conversation. I, what I took from that is that you have this diabolically clever scheme to keep your poll numbers low because Kerry Carter and all those other people who won had low po- low poll numbers at this this. Let's let's leave that aside. But uh, but but what is it? What is your comparative advantage here? What is it that you're offering as a candidate? Uh, and uh, you know, and what is it that positions you well in the rest of this? race to become the nominee that that a Pete Buttigieg or a Elizabeth Warren doesn't have. And and um, I know you well, so I want to invite you to call horse hockey at any point if what I'm about to say is not, if you don't see it out there. All right. I'm getting my horse hockey button out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You're the horse hockey button. Um, yes. There, there is nobody in this race. What, what my, I just left New Hampshire. My team looked at me almost pleadingly. They just said, if you could stay in New Hampshire, you would win this race in New Hampshire because of what they see, what happens. Uh, you come to one of my town halls, um, and we're seeing this in Iowa. The people who come uh, sign their commitment caucus cards at incredible rates. I don't think there's anybody in this race that is good as I am in energizing, engaging, and exciting voters on the stump and out there in the retail politics and can trigger key parts of our base. Remember, I'm the mayor of a majority African-American city that is a key constituency uh, when it comes to South Carolina. In fact, from Maryland to Mississippi, you go around all those states, African-Americans are nearly most of the majority of the primary electorate. Um, the key parts of our base to win a primary, uh, my whole career has been exciting African-Americans, female voters, young voters. And I know that coming out of Iowa, New Hampshire, if I'm in the top three, um, I don't care who the other two are, um, that I can beat them uh, with key constituents that define the Democratic primary uh, coalition. And then in a general election, I think I have the message that best wins. No, no, that is a good point. Murphy here. So luckily, punditry is an unlicensed profession. I was wrong about 2016, too. But let me postulate something, because I've been an early pundit booster of yours, because I think you're a great performer. And I think you could run the table if you could get out of Iowa in the top two. And I agree the polling moves late, but we're close enough that there should be more indications now. So I think on paper, your your pitch is pretty good because it all makes sense. But I'm going to throw maybe a contrarian argument out and see how you react to it because you've got to make some decisions now as you have the big 100-day sprint that's going to mean everything in Iowa. I think your message is an extremely strong general election message. It's very communitarian. It's very much a way to move the country forward after the pain of the last four years. I'm a Trump-hating Republican. I think it could be very powerful. But in a Democratic primary, your town halls might be putting on an entertaining moment of of kind of feel-goodness, but it's not turning voters into soldiers for you who want to pick you as a fighter to carry the flag 
for the Democratic Party. Your your message is almost observational in some ways about a larger sense in the country more than make me the Democratic nominee. Do you totally reject that, or are you thinking of, of sharpening the edge of your pencil a little bit here as it gets down to a situation where you got to move those polling numbers or the scenario that's good on paper to run the table is not going to happen, let alone the finance, because that's driven by poll numbers too, whether you like it or not. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of a lot of uh, substance in what you're saying, especially on the finance side. Uh, you can't we can't win in Iowa if you're not if you don't have the resources to hire up in these uh, final hundred days in a significant way. Yeah. Um, but I will say again, it's more than just entertainment. I mean, we are winning the uh, the local leader uh, uh, activist uh, class in significant ways for us to have more endorsements. Uh, than Biden or or Harris or Warren is pretty substantive at this point. Um, but I, I absolutely agree about our message, which is one that excites and energizes folks and gets is getting folks on board, but has not converted to polling yet. And one of the reasons I think is unique about this election is we have so many uh, Dagnab people in the election right now that makes it harder. I mean, you still have everybody from Bullock and my dear friend, I think one of the best candidates in the race, Bennett, um, mm-hmm. and others that are still in this race, still competing out there. And I think it's freezing a lot of folks. Uh, and if you look at the firmness, what we're seeing in the, in the polling is the firmness of people's commitment to the person that they're saying they're supporting is not that firm. In fact, most voters are saying that they're still open and haven't settled yet as still so many quick candidates swarm around uh, Iowa. So that's another challenge that we face. So here's the dynamic that you that we see right now. I want to get to sort of real politic here. Uh, you've got uh, Warren and and Sanders who, um, you know, are very much competing on the left. You've got Vice President Biden, uh, who is you know whole, is the sort of a center left candidate, a moderate candidate, uh, a candidate who has you know in some polls up to half the African American vote, which is largely what's pumping up his national uh, polls. But there's this fear among Democrats that he may not be a stretch runner here. They're concerned about his performance level uh, and uh, and they're looking for an alternative. Uh, do you see yourself as that alternative? Yeah, clearly, yes. And, and, and I, I see it as the guy that actually can unify uh, a party in the way that we need to. I mean, remember, uh, uh, Donald Trump got less votes than Mitt Romney. And again, if you go to states like Wisconsin and 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 and, and Detroit and Michigan, uh, you start to see that the best person in this field to ignite and energize uh, to beat Donald Trump is me. And frankly, um, I believe very strongly uh, that I'm the candidate that can pull in the whole uh, breadth of our party. Um, to make sure that we're united and energized and engaged to actually get the vote out and win in November. Well, so looking at the primary, here, here's another real politic question. It's pretty clear that a big war is coming between um, Warren and Sanders on one side and Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg on the others. Uh, Bennett's already there, but he hasn't had the muscle to make it really move over health care. In other words, you know, is it going to be Medicare for all who want it or just Medicare for all? And the polling, even in the you know Democratic primary universe, is pretty split. Where are you going to land in that big fight? Because that's going to dominate, I think, a lot of the debate going forward now. Yeah, but it, it's a bit of a false fight. Don't you think? I mean, at the end of the day, the system of our healthcare is savagely broken. I mean, it is, it is, I mean, what I see, the worst kind of incentives, incredible costs, more money than anybody's spending on the planet. It's just a broken system. And the best way to fix the system, I don't know people who are, when they want to talk about ideals, uh, the best way to fix the system is a system akin to a single payer Medicare for all. Why can't we just say that that is the best way to go about it. But this is why it's such a broken argument. It's because even Bernie Sanders is on a public option bill. If you just use the Democrats in the Senate right now that I know, I'm not sure if the majority of them support Medicare for all. And so why I say it's a false argument is whoever the President of the United States is, and we're all going to start at the same line and try to get to the same end where every single American has the kind of health care that senators have. That everybody should have health care. We all agree on that. So what can you, what can you get done 
in your first Congress? What can you get done right away? And that's going to be doing things that drive down costs and expand coverage. It may be we were one vote shy of getting Medicare eligibility to 55 uh, years old. Uh, we all know that we can do things that dramatically drive down prescription drug costs. So look, I'm not one to make perfect the enemy of the good in a nation that desperately needs a lot of good. When I walk around my neighborhood, I see the crisis of healthcare, people rationing their insulin, uh, not using their inhalers, uh, being incentivized not to go to the doctor until things become really bad and therefore really expensive for the system. So I know folks want to talk about the ideal, but whoever the president is, no matter how charismatic and persuasive they are, uh, uh, switching to a Medicare for all system and that is your first bill is just something that, hey, good, aspire for. But I know the Democratic caucus well, and you're not going to get that past the Democratic senators that are there. So we've got to be talking about how much every single day we can gain ground in expanding coverage and lowering costs. Is it a liability for Elizabeth Warren in a general, you think, to be to be that single note on it? I know that it's being demonized right now in a horrible way. And, and yeah, people are thinking, gosh, this person is going to come after my health care. I have unions, the largest union in Nevada, telling me we don't want Medicare for all. And I look at them and I say, I say very practically, yeah, you negotiated for your union, you should for your health insurance. You shouldn't have somebody taken away your health insurance. And by the way, None of the nominees that, that get elected are going to take away your health insurance. It's just not going to happen. So, so this is what I'm saying. This, this is one of those arguments that uh, I've now gone, been on debate stage after debate stage, watching people tear at each, not only the plans, but tear at each other. Uh, um, when, when we all on that debate stage agree that we want to get every single American with quality health insurance, I think the standard should be the kind that the senators have. And, and so that to me is, is where we have to go. The, the hurdles to get there are massive. Uh, we saw just what President Obama had to go through just to get a system now that hell, Republicans even enjoy, but you guys went through hell. We lost, we got slaughtered yeah. in the midterm election over that. So let's right. get back to real politics. Whichever person you have up there is going to be a tactician to try to do everything they can in a, in, in amongst Democrats even who are split on this issue to get as much coverage as possible at the lowest possible cost and in, end the insanity of spending more money than any other country on the planet Earth for healthcare and getting the worst results for industrial nations. You're, you're on the Sanders bill. You, you're a co-sponsor of the Sanders bill. And that is very prescriptive. It's, it's for a four year transition to a fully single payer system, no private insurance. Uh, you, you don't worry that if you were the nominee that that would be hung on you? David, I'm on every good healthcare bill in the Senate. I literally am. Every one of my colleagues that has great ideas, I've put forward a number of bills myself. So I don't think that's a liability at all. I, when I was mayor of the city of Newark, my staff talked, reached out to me, and, and they, they dug through my tweets knowing that other people would. And I, I went off on Twitter years ago uh, about how broken our healthcare system is and how we need uh, perhaps to have a single-payer system at some point in this country and get to rationalizing costs and care. So I, I, I'm, a, I'm a pragmatist. I, I, as I said earlier, I had to run stuff. I had to deliver services. I had a lot of ideals. Hell, uh, my, my, prison, uh, my criminal justice reform bills are big and bold, but when it came time to get into the trenches and actually get something done, I had to make horse trading and, and compromises to get the first bill done in our in my lifetime that actually rolled back sentencing and liberated people from prison. And I'm really proud of that bill. Is it what my perfect and ideal is? No, but it, it got people out of jail in the state of New Jersey. And so that's what I'm talking about right now is we we have to talk about this in a much more, frankly, just honest way. We, we are going to make progress as the Democratic Party. Whichever one of the nominees we have is going to drive towards expanding coverage and lowering costs for Americans. And there's a lot of damn good ideas to do it. And I'm a guy that's going to take every good idea possible that we can move the ball forward to gain ground and get it done. Because I've proven my ability in Washington to get big things done. It's nice to have uh, uh, plans, but I, I want a candidate with vision that can inspire, that can energize and engage folks. And, and that's why I'm running. Is, and then would you call that, if you were to summarize your, your, your message in, uh, to the country, if you were to in one sentence say, 
why you're running for pre- why you're running for president. Uh, what would that sentence be? You said before you had the best general election message. I'm running for president of the United States because we are tearing each other apart as a country. We are falling into deeper and deeper tribalism. We need to find common cause and common purpose. We have a lot of common pain, but I am driving every single day to be president of the United States because I believe that our generation, one of the biggest tests we have is can we put more indivisible into this one nation under God? And I believe I'm the president that can help make that happen. Senator well, Cory Booker, thank you for... I uh, can't think of a better note to, uh, to, to end <laughs> Joining that. us. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Well, you know, you can see why he's a good performer. It must be frustrating to him to have the communication power he has, but he's not moving the polls and not raising the money. But there is a taste, great, less filling aspect to his message that I think is just not converting people into uh, supporters for him in the primary. Maybe he'll adjust. No, I agree with you. Listen, I, I like Cory Booker. I really, um, he's got a great story. He's a good person. He's relentlessly positive at a time when, you know, he's right, the country is being torn apart. Uh, but uh, there is a, something ephemeral about it. There's something that isn't quite gripping. You know, he had a chance to be, to, to I think, draw a sharper distinction with his opponents here. He, when he talked about the country being divided, there are a lot of reasons for it, but the president has a lot to do with it right now. He didn't mention that I mean, I you know, you and I have talked about this a lot. I, I think he's 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 circling around what is the winning democratic right. message, which is, you know, uh, we can't do four more years like this, waking up every day to this craziness and nastiness and so on. But uh, I think he just, you know, the flip side of his strength is his weakness. He's relentlessly positive. He is uh, not a slasher, but the flip side of that is. There isn't a sharp enough point on his message right now. Yeah, no, I think he could be, I think he could win a general election. In fact, I think he'd be a strong general election candidate. But right now, he's kind of got the problem Mayor Pete had a while back, which is he's an observer and commentator on the process of the primary rather than a spark plug driving something. And, you know, he's got 100 days. He's got communication skills, but it's awful hard to do without money. And without polls, you don't raise money. So uh, we will see. But we haven't heard the last from that guy. He's just too good. I agree with that. And he is, by the way, on the ballot in New Jersey right now. So we certainly haven't heard the last from him. He's likely going to, if he, he's likely to go back to the United States Senate if this race doesn't work out for him. And I don't know, perhaps someone will look at him as a vice presidential nominee in the right constellation. Yeah, I can, I can see that case. All right. Well, it is time for the highlight. The the pinnacle here, the mailbag. And if you have a question for the hacks, you can email us at hacksontap at gmail.com. That is hacksontap at gmail.com and send us a question. Axe, let me throw the first one to you from uh, Christina. A year ago, I thought health care was being handed to the Democrats on a silver platter with Republicans trying to eliminate the most basic and popular protections in the ACA. But now, healthcare seems like the Democrats' downfall, the wedge issue that Republicans will exploit and turn against them. What happened? How do you see this playing out in the long term, and what would your advice be to each of the leading candidates now? Well, Christina, you're right that in 2018, healthcare was the issue that, as much as any other, led to the election of a Democratic Congress because of the efforts of Donald Trump and the Republicans in Congress to eliminate you know, the uh, the ACA and with it, the protection for people with pre-existing conditions and all the other benefits that flowed from the ACA. What's happened in the Democrat primary, we still have health care problems. We've got Trump trying to undermine the ACA, uh, even as he hasn't been able to eliminate it. Costs are going up. Uh, and there's health care is the number one issue among Democrats. And there's a competition among Democrats to be as uh, the most expansive on this. You just heard Cory Booker wrestle with it in our conversation. Medicare for all is actually a very popular concept with Democrats. Medicare for all, if it includes eliminating private insurance, is not. And tricky, diabolical characters like Mike Murphy on the other side, given this to work with, would go nuts. 
uh, as and uh, this is what Republicans are hoping for. So, uh, uh, Elizabeth, you know, it'll be interesting to see what Elizabeth Warren does and does she moderate her position. I would really focus, if I were Democrats, on uh, improving the ACA, perhaps adding the public option, and really focus on cost, which is the concern that most Americans have. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Healthcare is always a question, are you the side giving the heart attack about something new and scary, or are you the side getting the heart attack for proposing something new and scary? When the Democrats proposed some scary stuff, there was political backlash. Republicans went well. Last election, more ads were run on this than anything else by the Democrats that mean Republicans were allegedly going to take away your um, uh, right to pre-existing condition coverage and other popular stuff, and the Republicans got slaughtered. So if you come up with a new idea like, hey, UAW member in Michigan, I'm going to confiscate your private insurance that you fought so hard for, Guess what? You're going to be on the receiving end of the heart attack. If the Dems are smart, they'll switch that equation. All this heart attack talk, by the way, is not an insidious way of referring back to Bernie Sanders. And oh, we're not at all. Not at all. Yeah, he's, we are very happy. I'm yeah. going. It's a callback to the great studio boss, Jack Warner, who once was asked by a reporter, hey, we're running Warner Brothers. Are you worried you're ever going to get a heart attack? And Warner said, I don't get them. I give them. So it's yeah, an analogy exactly. to that. All good wishes to Bernie. Um, all uh, right. So Steve, two. Steve says, as presidential campaign professionals, do you believe that the Trump campaign social media war chest, if skillfully used, could overcome his unpopularity among the general population? Mike Murphy. No, no, and double no. No.com at no. Um, here, here's the deal on this. His social media war chest has two purposes, both useful to him, but not enough to dig him out of the hole. Purpose one is they use it to raise money. It's the junk mail of the digital era. A lot of the Trump campaign is about optimizing online fundraising because he doesn't do as well with the country club money because he's Trump and people are ashamed to support him. The second thing it can do is it can spread insidious bullshit on the Internet, which is a wild, wild west, as you all know, where whether you're a Russian troll farm or a, uh, an independent group or the Trump campaign, you can put out half-truths that are hard to police. That has some advantage to them. But Donald Trump is somebody the country's willing and ready to fire. The question is, will the Democrats nominate a candidate who is positioned in a way that gives Trump something to work with. And if that's the case, and he can change the election to punishing the Democrat as somebody who's scarier than him even, social media will be a useful tool to that, but it's not a magic pill to reelect a massively unpopular president. It's a tactic that could assist him in damaging a Democrat who's vulnerable enough. I think this is going to be a marginal election, and I think that uh, all these tools are very, very valuable. The fact that he doesn't have serious primary opposition. He's got $158 million in the bank and that they are spending lots of money on digital, uh, not just to raise money, uh, but also to identify supporters uh, and to test out themes with marginal voters uh, that might drive them away from Democrats and to Trump. Uh, if you know, I, I think one of the great concerns that Democrats should have is that Trump's campaign has a great big head start uh, in this regard. And, uh, uh, you know, Democrats tend to spend, the, sprawl their money out in a lot of different ways. Uh, there is no Koch brother corollary on the Democratic side. Uh, Democrats uh, should be doing this work at, uh, apart from their presidential nominee, developing their own uh, digital strategy uh, for taking on Trump, particularly in these battleground states and for identifying movable voters and the messages that will work with them on social media. I don't know that that work is happening. And, uh, you know, Democrats could live to regret that. So our final big finish question grande is from Gordon, who gets that position by writing, I love the show. Now put that on iTunes. Work that algorithm, Gordon. His question is, the cracks in Joe Biden's support may be starting to show, but is there any candidate that could pick up the African-American vote from him? Warren and Sanders' policies don't seem to appeal to black voters. Pete's struggles with black voters have been well documented. And each passing day, Kamala and Corey seem like increasingly less viable candidates. Is there a way to crack Joe's support from the black community? And if so, what do the candidates need to do? 
I think his support in the black community is is real, and I think it flows from his very productive partnership with President Obama that people haven't forgotten, and uh, it will stick with him uh, to a point. Uh, the question is if Biden, in states where there aren't large minority populations like Iowa, like New Hampshire, where this process begins, if he stumbles, will that support stick with him? And if it doesn't, who does it flow to? Because you're right, Gordon, that uh, uh, none of the other front-running candidates have shown uh, broad appeal in the African-American community, and candidates who might uh, are likely not going to survive uh, Iowa, New Hampshire. You know, we'll see, you heard uh, Senator Booker uh, and his hopeful uh, scenario, but uh, uh, this is what keeps Joe Biden uh, confident that he can survive even losses in Iowa, New Hampshire. I have doubts about that, but his strong support in the African American community is the is the most uh, uh, persuasive element of the argument that uh, he can uh, become the still become the nominee of the party. Yeah, no, I think he's got a lock on it till he starts losing, and then nothing will succeed like succeeding in winning that New Hampshire primary. Now, I think Corey's right on paper, and the same could hold for Kamala Harris, if they can finish top two in New Hampshire and and be in the race with momentum, they might be able to roll the table down south. But I'm also, when I was listening to Senator Booker, reminded of the old Steve Martin joke about how to get $100 million in your bank account in just three days. Step one, get $100 million. So all he's got to do is be top two in New Hampshire, and then he could do it. And not impossible, but not easy. So I think now let's cue the sound effect. Last call. Okay, so Murphy, what is going on with Hillary Clinton? (laughs) She went on a podcast of our old buddy David Pluff, and she unloaded on, of all people, Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, and uh, fingered her as a Russian asset in this campaign. What, what was that all about? <laughs> you know, it was so funny because she may be right about Tulsi Gabbard. The troll farms in Russia like Tulsi Gabbard a lot, and that doesn't happen by mistake. Well, and, and Trump why, defended her, so speaking right. of, of uh, alleged Russian assets. But why Why would you take Tulsi, who's losing a battle with the margin of error on every poll, and elevate her? It's the best thing to ever happen to Tulsi Gabbard. So I have a theory that I'll be on uh, Hannity later explaining, because I think I've cracked this <laughs> thing, X. Here's how it works. Tulsi Gabbard is supposed to appear to be a Russian asset. But by elevating that Russian asset to more power, the real Russian asset is, of course, master Kremlin agent Hillary Clinton. It's all a double <laughs> three-dimensional chess. They're all part of the dark state uh, elevating Tulsi because Hillary is the real Russian cat's paw here. And most people don't understand yeah. it. It's all on the server, which is hidden in the Ukraine. So uh, stay I tuned don't think for more theories. Is- I actually think this is less about Hillary Clinton hidden <laughs> Russian asset and more about Hillary Clinton dismal political strategist, as we saw in 2016. It's just a crazy ass thing to say. Um, yeah. you know, and, uh, uh, we'll leave it to her to, uh, to, to explain it. What's on your mind today? Well, if you spell Hillary Clinton Soviet agent backwards and take out every third letter, it's Russian for Pierre Delecto. So I think this <laughs> needs to be investigated. I kid, I kid. All right, what's on my mind is a little bit of what I brought up with Corey. I'm on the board, so I'll, I'll disclose. Nobody pays me, but I am involved in the public charter school movement. And we have polling by the excellent Joe Benenson, who you know well, that shows 60% of primary voters in the Democratic Party think we ought to have more funding for public charter schools. They also want some reform in how those schools are run. So Corey might have a bit of an issue here if Elizabeth Warren really wants to declare war on every federal dime going to stand-up charter schools uh, for public school students caught in places where they don't have a public school that gives them the education they really deserve. So I think that was a blunder by Warden, and we'll see what happens. She's in Chicago today uh, uh, marching with striking teachers there. You know, Corey, uh, at this point, if I were he, I'd be thinking, you know what? Uh, go big or go home. And yeah. you have to you I have agree. to draw distinctions. And this is, I think, a very good distinction uh, for him. I, he, he stood up on this, as you pointed out, 
with some courage, took a lot of heat for it, and believes in it. So why not make it an issue? Why not, you know, and that's maybe ultimately the challenge that Corey has, which is he, he, he eschews rough edges, you know, and uh, he doesn't want to make those kinds of uh, sharp distinctions. And that, of course, is necessary if you're running for president of the United States. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think if you or I were working for Corey at 1%, we would have him in an urban charter school today taking on Elizabeth Warren to elevate. And it would be good. It would get him attention he needs, and he's got a record on it. So we'll see. He's got 100 days to shift gears. Pete was able to shift gears. It helped him. Uh, and so we'll see if it happens for Corey. Well, pal, next week is Halloween, so I'm working on my scary future of the Republican Party costume. And, uh, Everybody's we'll wearing that. <laughs> you know, the truth is, I might have to find something a little more original. But uh, <laughs> uh, we will we'll get together next week and have some hacking on tap. Uh, all right, and we, we will be the run-up to the big, uh, formerly known as Jefferson Jackson Dinner, now known as the <laughs> Law and Justice Dinner, uh, where all the Democratic <laughs> candidates will get to strut their stuff. Actually, a, an iconic moment in the Iowa caucus process. So we'll talk about that next week. See you, brother. Have a great week. What great if weekend. the law is unjust? I don't know. I, I would have gone for historical apology night, but that's just me. All right, pal. Yeah. We'll see you next week. Find your own party, will you? <laughs> we'll talk to you. Bye-bye.